0: One day a newsman came to me and said, Dr. King, don't you think you're going to have to stop now opposing the war and move more in line with the administration's policy? Because I understand that it has hurt the budget of your organization and people who once respect you have lost respect. People who once respected you have lost respect for you. Don't you feel that you've really got to change your position? I looked at him, and I had to say, Sir, I'm sorry you don't know me. I'm not a consensus leader. I do not determine what is right and wrong by looking at the budget of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or by taking a sort of Gallup poll of the majority opinion. Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a sucher for consensus, but a mold of consensus on some positions Expedient a cowardice asks the question is ex- expedient. And then expediency comes along and asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question is it popular? And conscience asks the question is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular but he must do it because conscience tells him it is right and I believe today that that is a need for all people of goodwill to come with a massive act of conscience and say in the words of the old negro spiritual we ain't gonna study war no more.
1: Welcome back to Left Anchor, I'm Alexi the Greek.
2: And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today, uh, we're recording on Martin Luther King Day. We'll see if uh, this comes out on the same day, but uh, in the spirit of the times, we're, we're going to talk about Martin Luther King, um, one of the most misunderstood, um, most valorized and simultaneously most misunderstood um, Americans in, in history. A guy who has been uh, somewhat neutered by widespread, a consensus sort of sainthood and valorization that has kind of erased most, most of his uh, more radical uh, ideas and thoughts. And obscured the fact that in his life, you know, right before he died, he was very unpopular, especially among white people, because he was, you know, telling them stuff they didn't want to hear. Like the war in Vietnam was a disaster and, um, you know, the, the class structure of the, of American society was horribly dysfunctional and unfair. Um, those were lessons people didn't want to hear, uh, back then and they don't want to hear them today. Uh, so, you know, he just, it's, uh, I have a dream. Um, and, uh, Kumbaya. yeah, he was a martyr for, for civil rights and, uh, Everyone can agree it's great. Um, onward to you know the next uh, prison privatization scheme. Let's
1: let's take a day to think about him and not actually incorporate any of the lessons that he actually stood for and died for into our lives. That's that's what people want.
2: Yeah, or a few of them, you know, or just
1: a few. Just to, you know, uh, we'll get into what kind of love people take from him, much like the kind of love they think they take from Jesus himself. Uh, and the actual kind of love that Martin Luther King Jr. and Jesus, frankly, were speaking of. You know, the kind of love that gets you crucified, the kind of love that gets you assassinated, the kind of love that gets your character assassinated. Um, This is a different kind of love, a kind of love that challenges
2: power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And maybe the place to start uh, is his identification as a democratic socialist— uh, I you know t- I'm not exactly sure when he started doing this, but you know maybe towards the end of his life, but, a bit later. Yeah, yeah, he he did eventually come around to the idea that that some kind of democratic socialism, which uh, you know he posed as a sharp contrast with you know Soviet communism, of course, uh, was really the only sort of just way to to order an economic system, and um, you know in, as in preparation for this episode, we are reading a. a collection of essays, I think it's called The Radical King, and uh, I think it was edited by Cornell West, but there's one in there, a speech he gave uh, honoring Norman Thomas, who was sort of the figurehead of the American Socialist Party for decades, ran for president um, six times, I think, um, and uh, the, the speech is, was called The Bravest Man I Ever Met. And talked about Norman Thomas's uh, long history of fighting against, you know, economic uh, injustice and also racism. You know, having to me moved his offices at one point in this of the Socialist Party in New York because the landlord would not allow them to employ any black people, um, and uh, you know. Was occasionally somewhat clueless about about race in the way that, that white socialists can be. Sometimes uh, uh, King describes him uh, at a WPA uh, work camp or something like that, where asking the white laborers if if they would take five dollars a day across the board for both black and white, or if they would take four dollars a day if the black uh, laborers got three fifty, and pretty much all the white laborers went for the four bucks. That was what they would pick. And Norman Thomas was very depressed by that, but he learned a good lesson. Um, and, you know, in context was, you know, thoroughly on the side of black Americans. Um, and one of the few, you know, those were dark times in the 1920s, and the 1930s, you know, Jim Crow was all but unassailable in the South. Um, and you had, you know, a few lonely voices um, like like him. Uh, uh, among the white community, who were consistently speaking out, saying this is bad, it's uh, unjust, it divides up the working class, it uh, enables the power of the bosses, and we got to move past it. And um, you know, I had never even heard of this speech before. You know, I didn't know that they they had actually exchanged many letters and and been friendly personally. Um even though he was very old by that time, I think the speech was gave at a at a <clears throat> was given at a birthday party in celebration of norma thomas's eightieth birthday uh It was like the mid sixties or something like that but you know it you you look back in the in the history of of uh you know where the the white community uh uh has occasionally you know attempted to to sort of make common cause and solidarity with the black Americans it's very often the economic radicals uh who who f- who figure it out um and who are br- are most willing to take a sort of brave stand in keeping with that i suppose uh king king uh had in you know especially in his his later career before he died um you know he he had achieved a lot of the formal civil rights you know legislation that he had been pushing for massive victories voting rights act civil rights act fair housing act but you know remained uh, uh, the uh the black americans of the time remained horribly deprived economically and um they uh uh king You know, emphasized at the time it came to place greater and greater emphasis on the fact that if you don't have any money, civil rights is really not terribly meaningful to you. You know, um, there's a quote from one of these. uh, For we know now that it isn't enough to integrate lunch counters. What does it profit a man to be able to eat at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't earn enough money to buy a hamburger and a cup of coffee? What does it profit a man to be able to eat at the swankiest integrated restaurant when he doesn't earn enough money to take his wife out to dine? What does it profit one to have access to the hotels of our city and the motels of our highway when we don't earn enough money to take our family on a vacation? What does it profit one to be able to attend an integrated school when he doesn't earn enough money to buy his children's school clothes?
1: Right. I I think there's a saying that every radical – uh, was once a liberal. And, and I think there's probably some truth to that for King too, in the sense that he got radicalized over time. And part of that radicalization was, um, of course the, the root word of radical, uh, I, the etymology of radical means root, right? So, so like yeah. he, he, he ends up kind of piecing together that um, true liberation, true freedom is in keeping with the human dignity of the person as a whole. And that must include these economic conditions that give rise to all kinds of other indignities.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, in, in any system of production, you know, I think capitalist or otherwise, you know, an income, a job, you know, a, a, a some kind of source of ability to pay for the necessities of life is, is, is not just about the ability to pay for the necessities of life. It's about being able to participate in society, about being able to you know go and do the things that regular people do that if if you are so broke that you can you can just barely you know cook your pot of beans and rice to to feed yourself and you can't do the things like you know go to the movies or take your your girlfriend or boyfriend out you know for dinner every now and then, or you know buy some buy uh uh books and notebooks for your for your kids at, uh, to go to school with. You are you are ostracized. You are you are you are you are not able to participate. You are humiliated by the the economic system, and it's it's you know I mean the material deprivation is bad, but the the social effects of it are are bad, and maybe in some ways even worse. You know the 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 inequality in itself is associated with all kinds of horribly toxic. Uh, social outcomes, slower life expectancy and and um, you know uh, higher rates of disease and alcoholism and addiction and, and all the all the rest of the various social dysfunctions and I think that you know uh, is is partly or largely at the root of that is this uh, the withdrawal of community. So, to speak.
1: Yes. And that's why capitalism is, I think, best understood as uh, about social relations, right? And the many ways in which social relations are organized or disrupted. Um, and that includes how we relate to other citizens and how we as a nation state relate to other countries and other peoples around the world. Uh, and all the ideological ways where, say, race is, is, race is constructed in order to do various things, right? And again, this, this all comes back to, to to power and how power can be something that people uh, relate to as a way to dominate or as a way to, to liberate, right? There's spiritual freedom and spiritual power that comes through solidarity and understanding the human dignity that we all share in common because of our shared humanity right the fact that we are ontologically all created equal or there's the ability of those to use to use political and economic power to dominate and in so doing make it seem as if they can create themselves to be more than human and make others less than human to have uh and this is why aristotle says that human beings are political animals because they belong to the polis. They belong to the community being neither God nor beast being equal as humans. Now, of course he has, uh, some stuff on slavery we don't have to get into, but, but that yeah. was more, um, you know, a slight digression more about, uh, kind of whether people by their nature can be, uh, slaves by nature and, and want to, uh, flourish by being ruled over and and so forth. Um, But insofar as that's not true and the Declaration of Independence posits that it's not, that all human beings are created equal and therefore all beings have the right to self-rule because no one is by their nature superior and able to be a master to one as a slave, that then means we all should uh, free ourselves from the domination um, that various groups and people use their power to enact upon us. And and that leads to, you know, not just deprivation of these material needs, but also sending people to war, also creating ghettos, also treating people in all these terrible ways. So King was piecing together, it seems to me, the relationship among all these forms of abuse of power and all these forms of domination and kind of on the other side of it, all the forms of, freedom and dignity that need to be fought for. And so he, uh, he and many others, we should say, you know, all those great successes you talked about, of course, you know, I don't think you meant that he accomplished them on his own. He was part, no, 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 he's one that. of the many leaders of a, of a collective movement of activists. And, and that was yep. something that was struggled for uh, over a number of years. He came to see that the, the next kind of front in the war for human dignity and spiritual freedom was increasingly about, uh, poverty and unions and, uh, militarism, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, maybe, maybe just a final comment on, on the, you know, the, the economic angle a a fellow at daily Coast back in, I think 2011 wrote a very good article about, you know, um, I think it was called. We'll link to it. Like most of you have no idea what Martin Luther King actually did, and um, it's about it's about why why Black Americans feel a certain possessiveness towards the King legacy, which is entirely um, uh, justified. But you know what King, and broadly, you know King as the figurehead of this gigantic uh, social movement um in which you know he was maybe a catalyst but only you know that like, literally millions of other people were 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 critically involved in um they tore down a system of uh, 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 the Jim Crow South was not a democracy it was a horrible fucking tyranny um and it was it was you know if you're a black person in in those uh, areas what you lived under was a constant fear of of what the, the this guy I forget his name is like atavistic violence and that you you like white people would occasionally go berserk and and just murder people for no reason they just constantly accuse uh, black people, usually men of doing stuff that they could not conceivably have done or just pummel people senseless for a slight infractions of, you know, like reckless eyeballing or something like that. Um, and so, you know, black people in the Jim Crow South are forced into this humiliating, servile posture to, you know, avoid triggering this just psychotic thirst for blood that existed in the sort of like dominant white culture. And that was what the civil rights movement broke apart. To make the make the South, for a time at least, a kind of sort of democracy where people could, you know, live free lives. At least they were a lot more free than they had been. And you could sort of walk the streets without the fear of just being killed for no reason. Um,
1: yeah, it occurs to me that that shift later in his career such a bourgeois bullshit term, later in his life, his shift, right, uh, tracks with those successes in first, you know, it strikes me, first fighting the more virulent form of white supremacist terror that Jim Crow South embodied. Um, And then after the successes, not to say that that white supremacy was defeated, but as you say, um, many, many parts of how outright uh, violent and, and uh, terrifying and lawless. Um, many ways in which the South had uh, reclaimed its pre Civil War uh, tyranny over the lives of black bodies. Uh, the successes against that. Then gave way to focusing on the north and ghettos and the more subtle forms of racism and white supremacy. Yeah, that, but you know, actually, when we have talked about the case for reparations, Ta Nahisi people are often surprised to read that it's not about the south, it's, it's about the north, right? Yeah, and, and it's again focusing on those other forms that, uh, I guess if you, if you think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or uh, just in terms of meeting them, it's like a kind of a triage, you, you know, someone, right. someone's going to lynch you. Okay, let's, let's deal with that first. <laughs> and then we can talk about getting paid proper wages and which water fountains we drink at and things of that sort, right? Um, but all of which are are related inevitably to basic human dignity and um, spiritually. Uh, no different in terms of the the kind of crimes against humanity and spiritual truths that he was trying to uh advocate for
2: right yeah, yeah, and this brings me that 's to the point that i 'm making, which i think i think it 's absolutely fair to say, as the daily coast uh uh writer uh says that that the major legacy of of dr dr king uh is You know, it it is about improving a lot of of black people. But I also think that there's an element to his thinking, his writing, his advocacy and his activism that is a useful thing for white people to to take and uh, consider and, you know, um, uh, value as part of their own heritage in a sense, you know. I was like you might think, it's like a second cousin type of thing, you know, not your closest relative, but nevertheless, you're you're friendly. Yes, yeah, say, say,
1: say more what you mean about what what's um, the
2: yeah yeah. But basic basically, you know, King argued, and in many many occasions that that the the um black black and white, the black and white poor and working class population were uh, of necessity stuck together. And that allowing racism to uh dominate society harmed both of them in the end it harmed black people worse oftentimes much worse, but it also harms the white people by preventing the type of broad based working class coalition that could advocate for mass unionization for better social welfare programs that would benefit everyone equally and also you know more more uh, just sort of spiritually not allow not not letting your heart be poisoned by race hatred, um, yeah,
1: so insofar as King is critiquing imperialism and capitalism, that challenge both would consequently lead to encouraging the mass movement that is integrated and necessary among all races and peoples to make the change that we need to have material improvement in our lives, but also the spiritual acknowledgement that, as we've said before, even the wealthiest, most powerful, whether white or not, people under capitalism are, are likely miserable because of the ways that it harms your very being. And whether you believe in God or not, uh, King dissects the various harms and various freedoms on offer for people, white, black, poor, rich, um, uh, that that I think is is a very valuable thing for everyone, including the white population, to to learn from, uh, and maybe we could especially look to his speech on Vietnam to to yeah. dig into that.
2: Yeah. Before before we do that, though, let me just quote a real quick uh, excerpt from an article he he wrote in the Nation in 1965. Uh, he says, "quote It is an irony of American history that Negroes have been oppressed." and subjected to discrimination by many whose economic circumstances were scarcely better than their own. The social advantages which softened the economic disabilities of southern poor whites are now beginning to lose some of their attractions, as these whites realize what material benefits are escaping them. Uh, The section of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which withholds federal aid when it is used discriminatorily in federally-assisted programs, has revolutionary implications— It ties the interests of whites who desperately need relief from their impoverishment to the Negro who has the same needs. The barriers of segregation are splintering under the strain of economic deprivation, which cuts across caste lines. To climb the economic ladder, Negro and white will have to steady it together or both will fall.
1: And I think this is a, a beautiful passage that, I mean, it goes to the root of the divide and conquer ideological weaponry of those in power of the capitalists that uh, like Corey Robin has written about John C. Calhoun is the same thing that was done for white people during uh, slavery to make them think that they were equal to the actual richer aristoc- aristocracy who owned the plantations and say, look, don't worry about our class differences. We're equal in that we're both white. We're both the masters. And so, you know, you're on our team in other words, dividing people over race to ignore the actual class formation and class solidarity that would actually challenge the powers that be, their wealth and their power. Um there is the spiritual component as well though here, right? That's that's really a, a beautiful thing. Not only are your material material interests conjoined, but race is especially bullshit because we're all children of God, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it is a uh, uh it it does harm someone's soul you know to to be consumed by race hatred and this is where i think uh, king would really disagree with the the kind of afro pessimist um uh, school of thought you know which which views white supremacy as sort of like the organizing principle of all of american history um you know that this it's it's kind of the take of the 1619 project uh in the new york times um which you know I think makes a lot of good points and, and kind of exaggerates a lot of other things, but uh, uh, you know I think I think King, I think it's fair to say King would say there's a different element in there too. There is an egalitarian strain in American history. There are you know there 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 have been there are today many uh, cross racial coalitions uh, that that do recognize, however imperfectly a kind of egalitarian cross-racial, you know, co- commonality of interests. And, um, you know, to, to suggest that white supremacy is all there is, 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 is not only false, but the, the idea that it's, a that it's like a positive good for white people, I think is, it's just false on the, on the merits, you know, it, it it's, it's the, it's the devil's chalice, you know? It's,
1: yeah. So that's interesting. So, so, There are a couple points to disentangle there. One is that it's not actually, even if we were thinking amorally, right? White people, even if you benefit from capitalism and racism materially, you don't benefit actually because of what it does to your soul. And this is kind of James Baldwin's point as well, right? What we've talked about um, that he kind of pities and, and thinks there's more damage done to the the virulent racist than to the victim. Right. Um, And that's controversial, but it also occurs to me that it's obviously true that neither story that this is kind of as many conservatives would want to say, you know, America and is exceptional and and just uh, a land of freedom and opportunity that um, needs to be unassailably great in the telling of our story. And we have these uh, just virtuous founders and all these you know just, like but so but that story is a myth that is as untrue as the myth that we're simply a white supremacist nation. Uh it, like. Either myth erases the complexity of the history and the actuality. And yeah. not, not that myths can't be useful or helpful, but we need to take care with what our myths are and what they're doing, right? Yeah. So, t- so to say that there is um, – first of all, to say that our history is a history of white supremacy is both true but also erases, erases the role of those who have struggled to make it less so. And, and right. Yeah.
2: yeah. So Amos T Ackerman, uh, attorney general under Ulysses S grant for a couple of years, a former Confederate who owned slaves fucking kicked the ass of the KKK suspended habeas corpus throughout the South arrested thousands of, uh, Klansmen con- convicted thousands of them, sent them to prison had, you know, federal, federal courts trying these sons of bitches and broke the organization apart. um, you know, and that was part of a very flawed, but still definitely uh, cross racial coalition. Um, to you know, which which included as part of its one of its maybe its most con- important constitutive element, the voting rights of Southern black people. Um, and, and it did fall apart. Yes, it didn't work, but it did exist.
1: It, but and the other thing I want to suggest, because we can obviously people know the references we're going to make, like. I think the true Americans were were Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, right? So joiner truth. Like but but what I mean is not to essentialize that there is such a thing as a truly American. Right. But the point is since that's not what's like there is no such thing as the true American. The point is we always every day, and especially in what we do to create our future, decide what it means to be American. And how about we say we get to decide that it means to be like Lincoln, that actually Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, all these people that fought and struggled for uh, the truly righteous, right? To truly liberate. That's who we want to make our identity be aligned with. Like we want, we want, uh, hopefully this country to be not aligned with empire. And when people think of this country, not to think of napalming Vietnam, right. Yeah. But, but like, if we can be the, you know, to appropriate a failed, um, po- somebody who could have been a radical to, to be the change, right. To be the ones that we're <laughs> waiting for or whatever, and like, be the change. Uh, we yeah. could actually create the kind of political and economic reality here and abroad, such that people, when they think of this country, think of us as a place of love and freedom and equality, and not of colonization, slavery and harm, right? So, so like, I guess the point is, what history do we want to draw on in order to carve an identity that influences the kind of activism politics that we push for today?
2: Yeah, yeah. And you, and you can't be, a, you know, you, you can't be a complete chump about it. You can't be like a, you know, conservative mirror image to say that like actually America has always been about black right because that would be preposterous. But you can say, you know, this this is this has been something we've been struggling towards literally from the day the country was founded, uh officially. All men are created equal. Meaning in that case, all all people. Um um and you know, we we've we've gone forward, we've gone backwards in that in that. But like we there there there's a real, you know, a sort of stick your flag in and we're and, aiming for and that look, target.
1: I, I'm all about Marxism, but Marx himself says only material force, right, can change material force. But theory <laughs> itself can become a material force when it seizes the masses. So like yeah. because there exists a declaration of independence, that rhetorical tool like th- those do- that document was something that people that actually f- fought for liberation and equality drew upon ideologically right in order to activate motivate and bring about material change yeah so, so like ideas matter and and we can appropriate them and we should and martin luther king is to this day remembered in part because of his ability to use words and ideas and draw upon principles that this country also right had even if there's hypocrisy and original sin and genocide and slavery there are also these ideals and these this history of drawing upon them that we can continue to draw on and and I think that's something that we should to honor Martin Luther King Jr is to honor how radical he was what his ideas actually were what power he actually challenged but not to be so pessimistic as to basically, you know, forget this country's possibility of redeeming itself ever.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think, and and that's maybe a good transition into the Vietnam uh, issue, which uh, King spent, you know, the, his last few years uh, just advocating strongly against, um, because as he notes, you know, in in his speech uh, Beyond Vietnam, which will which we'll link to as well. When, uh, when, uh, Vietnam, when Ho Chi Minh under the, you know, uh, finally beat off the the French, finally fought them off in, uh, 45, I think, and declared independence, you know, they cited the U.S. Declaration of Independence, uh, in their, you know, their, their, um, Initial declaration, because they,
1: they threw off the yoke of colonialism, like we did, right, like yeah,
2: <laughs> and they thought naively, perhaps that they might get some you know little assistance from the u s but you know because of like basically diplomacy in Europe at the time, and that the french hadn't stood, hadn't uh, reconciled themselves to so the fact their whole empire was going to go bust, uh, you know we decided to prop them up, and King has a very good history of, uh, uh, you know, the, the war and how it developed and, you know, how it emerged out of the French colonial experiment.
1: Yeah. He he says that for nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam, the right of independence. And, And we did this. He says, we, we vigorously for nine years supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. And before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs. So we even funded the yeah. fight against freedom. Almost all freedom. of it. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of good history in here. And, you know, speaking of identity as a country, so this is a good, actually, transition. Speaking of our identity, um, is incumbent upon the citizenry and the leaders among us to call out actions that actually abrogate the principles we say that we're actually about, right? So, so we say we're all about freedom, but as, as uh, King notes in the speech, the Vietnamese must have seen Americans as strange liberators.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. What the fuck is – what are these people talking about, you know? You're blowing us up. Yeah, it-
1: not only bombing, because, and we'll get to how unjust the bombing was, but but literally funding – The suppression of liberation revolutionaries, right? A
2: colonial, an explicitly colonial power for totally cynical, and I mean, worse than cynical, incompetent realpolitik, you know, to to, to not like, I think this is Truman, you know, I don't think FDR would have done this because he was very anti-colonialist. He thought the whole thing was stupid and pointless, but whatever the reason, you know, it should have been obvious by a couple of years at the latest i mean honestly like straight away that number one the colonial empires are are horrible number two they're all going down and so france like listen you want any marshall plan money you're gonna have to give up your Indochina shit because you're not gonna be able to fight off the vietnamese in any case so just fucking cut your losses and get out of there let these people go about their business which is what happened in the end, fucking 30 years later. Look, and
1: and so, so it's understandable that people say, okay, American empire, yeah, sure. You're all about freedom and equality. When all these historical antecedents, right? Uh, if we're going by the Christian, the Christian adage that by your fruits, you shall know them. Yep. Okay. Are we really about equality and liberation or are we about violence and domination and empire?
2: Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and I mean, you know, the, the thing about this, and what jumps out at me from, from from reading this speech, so King um he he uh grounds his analysis in a moral vision. You know, he, he talks a lot about how you know the, the the poor dang Vietnamese have just been stomped on for thirty years under the French, now under our war. Um Many you know people reduced to destitution, people killed by the by the hundreds of thousands, I think something like three and a half million died uh over that over the whole conflict um you know it's just been a grotesque uh atrocity for them and for all the American troops who died, and that you know conflicts just absolutely with his Christian principles, you know the brotherhood of man. All are one in Christ Jesus and, and all that sort of thing. Um, it, it, there's, you know, the, the, the parable of the sheep and the goats does not say, you know, anything about napalming people for, for unclear reasons. No,
1: and th- this speech, we're, we're going to link to it, it has so much in it that rings true today. Uh, not Absolutely. Only, right, not only are we not loving our brothers and sisters uh, as ourselves, but we're testing out our new weapon technology on them.
2: Yeah. Right? And, and the, the CIA is running a torture campaign. We're uh, we're
1: destroying the most valuable Christ, Christ, Christian institutions which are the family and community, right? So the yeah. family and the village is just literally being decimated.
2: Um Yeah. Conservative values. Come on.
1: And we also crushed as he writes, uh that country's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the Unified Buddhist Church. So we're also attacking church institutions.
2: Yeah. Religious liberty, that's us.
1: <laughs> so the the logic is is just bizarre because in a country and this is where it's all interconnected in a country where uh we don't think it's okay for a black and white person to sit next to each other at the lunch counter it's okay for them to fight next to each other and bomb villages next to each other and and just commit all kinds of violence and, and harm their souls together
2: yeah yeah you too can throw grenades into a uh, you know, Viet Cong, uh, camp, uh, black or white, you can you can blow them up, you you can reduce their bodies to rags of flesh.
1: It's, you know, it, it's it's kind of hard to know where to start in terms of the injustice because he sees, okay, we're we're harming those who would seek their own freedom. We're harming the families. We're we're killing millions of people. We're needlessly killing our own people those people that we're sending to war are disproportionately poor and marginalized also. uh, And their souls are being corrupted by the fact that they're killing people. And meanwhile, as a country, because we're pretending that war is just, we are also changing the very, you know, and and, and Plato would talk about kind of this isomorphism between the soul of an individual and the soul of the community. And, And in a way, if you think about it, a community is just a bunch of people together. And so kind of like what you do to the beings themselves is just a microcosm of what you do to the country. And so like our country is headed towards spiritual death because we're becoming people that think it's good to kill. We're killing. And that then both practically not just takes away funds that could go to the poverty program that he spoke of that was kind of curtailed uh, as we went to increase uh, war in Vietnam. but. Also, just spiritually, and if you think of this in like the Platonic or Augustinian sense, our souls are not are turned away from the good. We're turned towards death and violence and hate. And and the very act of focusing as if it were good on war changes us in a way that necessarily and then practically did move us away from attending to the least among us, right? It actually makes us love less in our being and, and in practice.
2: Yeah. All that said, you know, the 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 thing that jumped out at me reading this this uh speech is is in 1967, you know, so the the war would not end for another what, 6 years officially. I mean, what 75 was when South Vietnam finally fell. Uh but you know, so so he has a sort of 5 point program. He says uh, you know, end the bombing, unilateral ceasefire, you know, to get to negotiations. Reduce the, the you know, escalation in Thailand and Laos and Cambodia. Recognize that the National Liber- Liberation Front is going to have to be party to any negotiations. Set a day for removing all the troops. And that, you know, so you know, it's setting aside all that sort of moral stuff. If you just think about this in a really cynical power politics sort of way, that is exactly what should have happened and in fact did happen. You know, Nixon dragged his feet and did the, you know, fucking like basically a quasi genocide in Cambodia uh, as part of that process. Um, but like the strategic logic of the situation, you know, it's like we're trying to prop up this just fucking rotten puppet state, which could not stand on its own t- two feet in part because it was being propped up by the United States, and the only logical thing was to just get out of there. Well, look, and the, here,
1: here's the thing, Ryan. When you say that separate from morality, I, I don't think that it
2: is. Because well, I'm getting, I'm getting okay. to that though. So, so you, um, you know, you you look at this, and and so you know, he's very historically informed. You know, he talks a lot about the land. There's a great uh, biography of, of George McGovern. In which uh, um, the second volume is going to come out uh, fairly soon, I think. But um, talks a lot about how McGovern, because he was a farmer, instantly recognized uh, the importance of land uh, to to you know the the policy of a peasant country, which is what South Vietnam was at the time. And the regime that we were backing was was uh, you know sort of run by all these horrible landlords who just exploited the shit out of the peasantry. And all of John F. Kennedy's and then later Lyndon Johnson's brain trusters just had no idea about this. It just didn't enter into their calculations at all. They thought because they went to Harvard that they could, you know, they just sort of instantly knew all there was to know. But, you know, he's clearly done a lot of reading and understood that the whole social basis of this regime we're trying to prop up is completely rotten and, um, so therefore comes to, from a variety of roots, a very, uh, you know, uh, morally appropriate and just straight up sensible, uh, approach that like, let get out of there. Just fucking get out of there. North Vietnam takes over on, it's going to happen. Like, let's be real here. It's going to happen. It did happen. There was no way to avoid it. Um, you could have just stayed there, just killing people pointlessly for however long you wanted, but eventually you're going to get tired, get out. And it's going to be the end.
1: Yeah, there's this unnecessary distinction between impractical or un, imprudent or unwise. It's funny because we we've now in modernity separated things uh, in such a way as to as to remove the practical from uh, the normative statements. But like, I, yeah. I almost can't even do it when I'm trying to to, to state it that way. Uh, but like, as as if you could separate the calculus in terms of your own interests. Let's put it that way. From what's what's moral or good. And the truth is, going back to Plato, right, like, truly, there will be conflict until kings are philosophers and philosophers are kings. And what that meant is that, like, power and wisdom need to be aligned. If, if might doesn't make right, if might needs to be aligned with right, you need to know what the good is. And, and yeah. that is, in fact, what will lead to prudent judgment. And so, for example, just a basic, like, as you were suggesting, it, one example, King writes... What do the peasants think as we ally ourselves with the landlords as we, and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning, concerning land reform? What do they think as we test out our latest weapons on them, just as the Germans tested out new medicine and t- new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe? Where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones? And so like, If, if your moral vision is totally clouded where you think you can like bomb the shit out of people, harm their institutions, harm their families fight against people who are fighting for their material and spiritual lives and then claim that you're the good guys, right? (laughs) Uh, That is both morally just confused and blind and outrageous and evil, but also just practically is not going to lead to a victory that relies on the people buying in to your vision and and actually – you're antagonizing all the people, right, for very good reason, who will now see you as their enemy, right? And so you're going to practically create all kinds of enemies, and it'll be very, very hard to win. So like the fact that we have these pointless wars all over the world, not disconnected, right? Our, our inability to win, quote unquote, whatever that might mean, yeah. is totally connected to the, the immoral and dangerous and evil abuse of our power.
2: Yeah yeah the Im- the immorality the hypocrisy the hubris you know the idea that we could just have whatever we want all the time which seems never to be dented no matter how many times it blows up in our face and doesn't work but to to uh you know to to, to con- conclude my point here um uh king says uh he he argues for a, a restoration of uh you know a, a revolution of values that, uh, you know, that, that would change the way that, that societies um, uh, conduct their foreign policy, basically. He says, uh, quote, A genuine revolution of values means, in the final analysis, that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all mankind. This oft misunderstood, this oft misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I'm speaking of that force, which all the great religions have seen as a supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu-Muslim-Christian-Jewish-Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another, for love is God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. Um, oh yeah, one further, one further quote here. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. And what um, you know, so so he's referring here to, you know, Vietnam imperialist wars, et cetera, et cetera, you know, nuclear Armageddon and so on. But what what immediately jumped out to to my mind and what unifies, you know, the sort sort of like real politique mode of thinking and this, you know, sort of Christian you know, Muslim Jewish Buddhist fellowship type of thinking is climate change. Um, here's an area where we absolutely do have to recognize, you know, the, the, you know, the fellow, the fellowship of all mankind, um, because we, all of us in the world have to take action together to reduce our emissions. Um, and we, and, and, you know to to get to take a sort of narrowly cynical view of it they're like oh the united states is only 15% of global emissions and so that um cutting them will you know just allow china to steal a march on us and so we shouldn't you know it's not it's 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 false in its own terms but it more importantly just sort of just says like well i guess we got 30 more years or so of uh, driving around in SUVs and then we're all fucking dead.
1: Well, yeah, but that's the thing. Like you say that we need to, we do need to, but will we? That's the question. Because King points out the death wish that Americans seem to have as embodied yeah. in how their government acts on their behalf. And so so it's, it's not at all clear that just because like existential threat to the globe – is the condition under which we live, that that will lead to the kind of clarity of vision, even though it's right in front of you. Here's what's the threat. Here's what you need to do. You can't treat each other or other countries as if you're not in it together. Like that's why we need the prophetic voices of those who would under any circumstances help us see what's needed. Uh, And we need it strangely more than ever, even when it's more obvious than ever what's needed.
2: Um, Yeah yeah you you need it and this you know and this to me is where the christianity comes out uh you know the idea of you know love love your neighbor love your enemy as well um because you know the number one people we're going to have to negotiate with to to do some sort of a climate diplomacy climate arrangement is the the, the damn chinese communists oh see it's funny are,
1: that you said that i i was thinking i was thinking oh i have to i have to I have to I have to love the capitalists, damn it. Uh, <laughs> well, they
2: are capitalists. I mean, that's also a, those. They're, yeah, they're, no, but you know, it's yeah. a total fucking bullshit theory. That's true. But them, and the, and now India is in the grips of these, uh, you know, it's fascists. Like, yeah. And yeah. Even, even them, you know, you can't afford not to, you know, uh, figure at least, you know, maybe not to say like, oh, you know, we're going to be buddy, buddy forever, but like on this issue, we all have to recognize our common humanity, even the countries, yeah. especially the countries. I still think
1: you're are. approaching it in such a rationalist way that I don't think that can work. Like, I think...
2: Well, that's why you need the moral vision. Yes, you need the brotherhood of man because otherwise right. it's like you need, like, the, uh, you,
1: you, well, need you need conversion. You need transfiguration. You need the spiritual prophetic voice of a Dr. King to yep. to wake everyone up and realize, no, 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 this actually, your brother and sister. Like, like I don't care what you see, color or race or ethnicity or nationality. This is you over here, a different form of you. And until people are moved that way, and that's why, like a true socialist. Movement, uh, and I think what separates Bernie Sanders to the extent that like electoral politics can can inspire non-electoral movement and then change cultural and psychological and individual forms of being and ways of lives uh, of living, it's a call for international solidarity. It is that call, like King makes in this Vietnam speech, which is to treat the dispossessed, the marginalized your brothers and sisters around the globe as if they are in your family. Right. And that is something we need to do. Um, and so the, the war in Vietnam or imperialism, he writes is a symptom of a far deeper malady within, within the American spirit. And I think that's a way to think of it because he's also talking about domestic policy and he's also talking about the ways in which we need to figure out that root spiritual death march That we have to kind of like, if if sin is to miss the mark, and if you think of like, moving towards or away from the good as the kind of spatial metaphor for for the soul of the country and the soul of the being, we need to kind of have a movement that directs each person and directs us uh, nationally, locally, globally. Towards love and solidarity and selflessness and sacrifice and away from domination and death and destruction. Cause that death drive is there and people find that they, they are formed to love the wrong things, to love death, to love power, to love domination. So like yep. let's buy into all the forms of political movement, of cultural, um whatever whatever expressions of love, solidarity, equality, freedom help change and transfigure people. That's what we need to support. We need to fight and combat and speak out against all the forms of domination that move people towards that death drive.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And 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 I think you know, again, King King shows the 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 you know the limits of the kind of realpolitik vision. You know, um, um, because you know, I, I I thought for a number of years that China was was just going to start going really hard on renewable energy, but. Um, you know, as Trump has pulled back from the, the Paris Accords and what whatnot, so have the Chinese. You know, they, they have proven themselves unwilling to uh, uh, really wrench themselves away from coal power because, you know, it, it's it's a very inconvenient. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, the U.S. isn't doing anything. There's a lot of ways that you can make an excuse for that. Um, and. You know, the thing about the realpolitik way of thinking about stuff, you know, the, the, the sensible, moderate, you know, kind of cynical way is that it's, it's bloodless, it's lifeless. And, and you know, to, to take on a gigantic task like climate change, you know, you need some fire, you know, some brimstone, you, you need a, a, a moral commitment um to break through the crust of status quo and and all the you know powerful people who are profiting from like the current system to to say not that just like uh you know uh excuse me uh if if uh we are 30% of global emissions and uh shanghai is going to be under 20 feet of water in a century uh so maybe we should think about doing something i was like no or
1: or <laughs> in one of the thousand bloodless debates for the democratic primary uh, Amy Klobuchar was, was asked about climate change. And I think in, I don't know if it was in the question or someone else's answer discussing like displacement and how people are going to have to like, mo- you know, move from the coast and all these like tremendously significant changes to how we live. Uh, she basically says, well, I don't know if people have to move from their homes, but we'll have to make some changes. And at this, in the same breath, she called it an existential threat. So, like, she had yeah. the rhetoric of existential threat, but like, oh, don't be scared or don't worry. Really, it'll be fine. Nothing bad will really happen. You won't even have to move, you know? <laughs> and and yeah. so, like, that's the kind of – the white moderate that, that King hated was the kind of white moderate who was comfortable enough, didn't want to rock the boat, who uh, – sees in some ways the threats but doesn't really feel viscerally and understand truly the nature of the threats i think
2: yeah yeah and you know political centrism here is just is 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 uh, just going to cre- create armageddon you know and and you can already see it happening in the move from uh you know we we need to you know well the the radicals are exaggerating how bad it's going to be. You know, like, well, we, we can do natural gas as a bridge fu- fuel. You know, we can build lots of pipelines. You know, we need all of the above energy strategy, um, says Obama. Uh, and then when the disasters start hitting, it's like, well, I guess we're just going to have to abandon Miami. Sorry, Florida. <laughs> Sorry, every coastal community under, you know, 50 feet. Um, you're 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 fucked. And we just have to make moderate, sensible goals to destroy like a hundred trillion dollars worth of uh of wealth because I
1: cannot stand the people who sing the praises of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and then kind of shit all over Black Lives Matter, the movement for black lives, uh Colin Kaepernick, and say that those people are divisive, right? Again, just sanitizing and, and whitewashing. Feel for give yep. right. I, I, it's it's unbelievable. Look, I, I want to read uh, Cornel West ripping into Obama a little bit here. Um, <laughs> we can link to this book too. this is a, a very good collection. So he writes, Cornel West writes, King's nihilistic threat was the death of black crossbearers in a neoliberal or neo fascist empire, in which money and status would render the professionals complacent, and police and prisons would keep the black poor and working class contained. And the comings and goings of black celebrities, the culture of superficial spectacle, would seduce the masses to live vicariously through them. This charade of spiritual obscenity, moral vacuity, and political impotence makes King turn over in his grave.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I didn't. I didn't. uh, I guess I hadn't heard that the fierce urgency of now famous uh, Obama quote was actually was a reference to uh, the the, Vietnam speech. Yep, the Vietnam speech. Yeah. And of course that, you know, the fierce urgency of, of mm, let's not do anything. Of incrementalism. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and look, you know, West also talks about in this, in this piece that it's not for no reason that, you know, the movement for black lives and all these black activist movements arose under a black president, a black attorney general and forms of, of black power that had capitulated to wall street and to imperialism. And, yep. and that's because human beings are human beings, right? And, and so uh, what we have to be aware of, the the, the token, the symbolism, that isn't – like, it's very important that we, we elected the first black president. And it's perhaps understandable that there were certain constraints that make it hard for that first black president to have done something truly radical. Uh, at the same time, and this is relevant today when we talk about race and sex and, and economic um, needs – to To use identity in a way to mask the true needs of the human beings right and, th- and the fact that like women um, people of color, various groups who are signified as different, have been harmed and oppressed in particular ways uh to to have people in power that share that identity does not then forego the need to actually liberate those people and all people from the oppressive systems and power structures. And, 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 yeah. and as we've talked many times before, um, don't hire more female prison guards, like abolish prison, right? Like it's yeah. not good to have a female CIA director who, who approves of torture. That's yeah. just, you know,
2: get rid of CIA.
1: Yeah. Right. So, so like these are manifestations of oppression that need to be combated, not by switching around who's in charge of the oppression and Dr. King, right, in part was was killed because of the threats he was making to those powers that be to those power structures. He was, I mean, saying that the Vietnam War and our domestic policy makes us an empire akin to the Nazis. He was saying, yeah. he was, you know, throwing down fire, right? Just, just really indicting us and yet not being such a pessimist as to say that we're not redeemable. But that... It takes humility to atone for sins. And, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. Yeah. That's another thing Christianity can offer us, right? Is that, of course, you're going to stay in not just Vietnam, but in Afghanistan. I mean, it's amazing how the Pentagon Papers and what came out not that long ago about Afghanistan – the cover up about how ineffectual and how the people that were in charge of the military operations knew that it was ineffectual to stay yeah. there. How that was a cover up because, oh, we better not let this out, because we have a pride and a lack of humility and a need to pretend that everything we do is right that just exacerbates and, and continues the vicious cycle of violence. Um, so so that's another spiritual thing we have to do is have the humility to admit when we're wrong,
0: right?
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing maybe bringing back to Bernie, you know, the the thing about the um, the the Afghanistan papers that I that I think contrasts quite strongly with the Pentagon papers is that the American people have already given up on Afghanistan, like huge majorities, I think like like 67 percent, something like that of people say that the war in Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq were a mistake similar proportion of veterans of those wars say the same thing no, nobody thinks this fucking thing is worth it's a, they've just completely given up on on attempting to uh um you know like uh, but influence the government's policy. No. It's like, oh, there's just no way.
1: Well, you know when you're in an oligarchy when you don't even need to appeal to the people anymore because you, you've got the fixes in, whether it's from campaign finance or, or, or you know, uh, gerrymandering or all the different forms of corrupting the ability of a putative representative democracy to actually function on behalf of the people. Like, you know you're in an oligarchy when it's like, you know what? We don't have to convince the people anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. we, we can just profit off of violence and war despite... 70% of Republicans being against it. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. And that, and that, um, um, you know, Bernie, it was like the, the, the role of a s uh, of, you know, a statesman. If, if you're, if you're a, a politician in a democratic society, you know, your, your first, uh, you know, task necessarily. And I think probably rightly is going to be to cater to the needs of the people that elected you. um, but i think uh you know a, a a good statesman can channel those you know those needs those those desires uh in a in a way that is m- more broadly beneficial that is m- as as egalitarian as possible with respect to all the other peoples of the world and this i think is one of the more promising aspects of the bernie campaign you know bernie's been semi sort of like soft nationalist in terms of his economic you know focus it's like let's you know he's previously been like kind of bad on immigration but a sense like ditched most of that stuff you know it's like we need comprehensive immigration reform really not the case that that immigrants are like sort of competing with jobs or keeping wages down that's not really the main thing that matters it's all about how you structure the labor market and so on um but, you know, you look at surveys, There's been a couple of these done in the last few years uh, about like what, you know, what do the American pe- people think about uh, foreign policy? And the overwhelming sentiment uh, is, is just a sort of bewildered irritation. It's like, what in the fuck are we doing over there? You know, been in Afghanistan for almost 20 years. It doesn't seem any better than it was when we started out. Like, why are we spending so much money? And it's not uh, it's not necessarily r- really concerned that much with the fate of the Afghan people, but it could be channeled towards that direction by a wise leader.
1: Yeah, you got to be careful, though, because those are the Trump voters who think that we're spending all of our budget on foreign aid also. Like those those idiots who are like...
2: Well, see, the th- so the th- that's you
1: got people have to know what's going on actually too. To-
2: right, but you know, so there there is a minority of, you know, I I think it's a relative minority of people who are, you know, fuck everyone else America first. But I think there's a there's a lot that most democrats are like, listen, these wars are a disaster, they're a moral disaster and they didn't achieve any of their objectives. Just get out of there and i think that there's an a, there's a possibility there to assemble a coalition which is much more uh sort of morally internationalist It'd be like right. we need to withdraw the troops well, and reengage because diplomacy because it's
1: not even fair so, certain uh people that vote for trump or certain people that just maybe are not voters at all that that it it's quite reasonable to to think that um i mean if you're you could not understand how little we give to foreign aid, but if you just yeah. if you think, uh, and this is where people get taken advantage of when it comes to migrants and immigrants and so forth and welfare, not understanding that actually, like you know, undocumented workers pay into all the benefits that we get, right? right. But they don't actually get those benefits. So so it's the opposite, right? But but in any case, people could be like, hey, I uh, I don't understand. I'm suffering, and the people that are supposed to represent me in my community are not taking care of me. I, me and my family, were are not being taken care of. But these people I don't even know, they're not even part of my community, not even part of my country. They don't belong in this country or they're across the world. They're getting all kinds of money. What's going on? So you might even say that you understand where that's coming from. And the vision of a Bernie Sanders could be like, no, 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 no. We take care of ourselves and we take care of others mostly and primarily by like not doing all the harm that we're doing to others. (laughs) In fact, if you understand why people are crossing the border in the first place here, do you know what the fuck we've done to central Latin America and South America over the years? Do you understand how our fight against the drug war has caused so many problems? Do you know? So, so like simply educating and having a moral clarity, which says don't fight wars for no reason. Don't bomb people, you know, take care, those, those things go together well with take care of the people in this country. Yeah. And even goes well together with take care with all the people in this country documented or not. And right now, Bernie's platform is the most progressive when it comes to immigration, right?
2: Yeah. So, so,
1: so like, you know, Dr. King in this speech talks about at the very beginning, you know, Vietnam is very complex. And so you have kind of, People being mesmerized by uncertainty because there's so many complexities. Yeah, and then what's cool about it is he makes it very clear. So so don't be mesmerized anymore. Look what we're doing, and he breaks it down. And like
2: it it, ain't that difficult.
1: Yeah, and I think Bernie does the same thing. So like you can get bamboozled by thinking, oh boy, that's a tricky thing. How is imperialism connected to capitalism, and what does that have to do with it? You know, no, no, no. Simply, are we? Committing violence and oppression and harm, are we acting like an empire to to the people in this country and elsewhere, right? Like, are we focusing on, as King would say, are we thing-oriented or are we human or people-oriented? And so that's why King talks about, you know, these spiritual ailments or ills as being, um, you know, capitalism, materialism, racism, and militarism. And if you think about it, all those are really about, like, are you instrumentalizing people? Is the power you're talking about one where you're harming others for your putative benefit? Or are you thinking about people as ends in themselves? Are, are, you, being, are you having solidarity in treating others as equals? It's that simple. And that moral clarity cashes out in a thousand different ways in policy. But, like, yeah. it's really easy for, for Bernie. He doesn't have to keep track of his policy positions. <laughs> right? Have you noticed that in debates? Like it's yeah. very he's very, it's, he doesn't have, most to, part, yeah. doesn't have to take a minute to figure out what to say. He knows what to say.
2: Yeah. And that, you know, I think just maybe to wrap up here, I think that um, is, you know, the value of, of still reading, you know, Dr. King's uh, speeches and articles and books after all these years. Um, you know, the, 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 the problem that he identified with Vietnam is not exactly the same as it was, but it's still there. And it's still a fucking disastrous, pointless nightmare.
1: Unfortunately. Yeah. But so as unfortunate as it is that the same problems are with us, that makes it all the more helpful to draw upon the inspiration and wisdom of his words. Yeah. And, uh, I think there's a few more quotes I'd like to read just because they're so great. We'll link to the speech as well. But, um, you know, you might hear all the time that lefties or socialists say, it's structural, it's structural, it's structural, uh, right? <laughs> and that might be annoying. You don't know necessarily what that means. But like, here's, here's a point that King makes that, that goes to this, and, and it's uh, an apt reference to scripture. So he says, a true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we're called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. But that will only be an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs
2: restructuring. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, I, if, if, uh, you know, if, if, G- if Jesus was alive today, I feel like that that is absolutely a conclusion he would draw. The moral duty is, is not to—private charity is insufficient. You need to re- rejigger your whole economic system to, you know, make sure that everyone gets a fair, fair cut of the proceeds.
1: And so it doesn't just distribute justly, but so that it does not produce beggars nor produce millionaires or billionaires, I would say yeah right the very production itself needs to be restructured
2: yeah Um, those two things go hand in hand you know you can look at a chart of like the share the top one percent share of income going down with the share of the bottom 50 percent. i mean it's looting and pillaging that's what that was yeah brother. a million different complicated mechanisms but
1: so i say as we honor dr king today i'm gonna read one more quotation go for it because it's good he says, now let us begin, now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter, but beautiful struggle for a new world. I think yeah. We should Amen. all commit to that. Amen. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us on, hey, let's call it Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Week.
2: Yeah. I think absolutely. he deserves
1: it, at least a week, maybe yeah. a month, maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know. Uh, yeah, so, may- maybe a year. Yeah, Every you know, year. I-, I think the spirit that he was drawing upon... It's something we should draw upon always.
2: Yeah, agreed. We'll see you next time, folks. Bye, everybody.